Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, I will be reading and preaching from the New King James. I also want to explain that as I go through this text, and as I go through other portions of the book of Exodus, that each time that you see LORD in all capital letters, I'm going to substitute the name Jehovah. I have a very specific reason for doing that. Um, I hope you appreciate that. I think it's good for us to know what the divine name of our God is, His covenant name. And so I just wanted you to not be too shocked when you hear me say Jehovah. Hear now this reading from God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Then Jehovah said to Moses, And now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Jehovah. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Jehovah, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians have kept in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am Jehovah. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am Jehovah your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am Jehovah. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your holy word. And Father, we're thankful that you give it to your people as a means of grace, as a means of strengthening us and encouraging us, even feeding us, nourishing us. But Father, we pray today we would see how much of your word reveals your Son to us. For indeed, as we heard in Sunday school this morning, we need to preach the gospel. And the gospel really is the good news concerning your son. Father, we pray that you would take this message, 
drive it powerfully into our hearts. We ask that we would see our Savior afresh. We ask, Lord, that the power of the Spirit would be upon the preacher, but also, Lord, that it would be upon those who hear this message. May this be a time of your power, a time where we hear supernaturally the voice of our dear Savior. We ask that you would do this for your own glory, but also, Lord, we ask you to do this For indeed we are your children and we desire to be blessed by you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first time I came to preach, I preached from 2 Peter chapter 1. And I pointed out at the end of the book we read, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There is a connection between knowing Christ and and growing in grace. And then the next time I preached, it was from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The focus of that message was the need to behold the glory of Christ in order for us to be transformed more and more into his image. So the first message from Second Peter was on knowing Christ, the need to know Christ, and the other is beholding Christ's glory in the scriptures. I actually pointed you to some ideas about how the Old Testament does that. There's no contrast, there's no difference really I see between knowing Christ, growing in your knowledge of Christ, and beholding His glory. The more you know Christ, the more you see Him in the Scripture, the more you're beholding His glory. It's very easy for us to see that the New Testament is a means by which we can see the glory of Christ, that we can grow in our knowledge of Christ. But there's a tendency in the Old Testament, not to see him so clearly. We see him in the types and the foreshadowings and in those prophecies concerning him. In Genesis 3.15, we see him as that seed of the woman who would bruise Satan's head. In Exodus, we can clearly see him expressed, represented in the Passover lamb. In the book of Leviticus, we see him represented in the other atoning sacrifice. In the book of Deuteronomy, well, I, let me go back to Numbers. We see him as the rock that was smitten, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. In Deuteronomy, we see him as that prophet that the Lord would raise up like unto Moses, pointing to the Messiah himself. What is frequently overlooked is the role of the second person in the Old Testament. The role of the second person of the Trinity. I want you to look at Hebrews, or at least hear these words from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 and 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, 
Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Here it is. For this one, referring to Christ, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that the reason why Christ has more glory than Moses is because Christ built the house that Moses was a part of. Does that sink in? Are you getting that? Christ had a definite role under the Old Testament. He was building the old, building the old covenant church. I hate to say it that way. I should say he was building the church that was under the old covenant. There's only one church, not two. There's only one church. Now, A. A. Hodge, in his outlines of theology correctly points out, and I'm quoting now, the Jehovah who manifested himself as the God of the Jews under the old economy was the second person of the Trinity who became incarnate of Jesus of Nazareth. Now his father, who was a little bit more outstanding of a theologian than his son A.A., but I like the way... Charles Hodge, in his systematic, put it. He wrote this. In the New Testament, this manifested Jehovah, who led his people under the Old Testament economy, is declared to be the Son of God, the Logos, who was manifested in the flesh. In John chapter 1 and verse 18, we read that no one has seen God at any time. That reference to God there has to be a reference to God the Father because we know from the Old Testament that Jehovah appeared to many. He appeared to Abraham. We see this in chapter 18 and verse 1 where it says that Jehovah appeared to Abraham. But we also find that Jehovah appeared to each one of the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the name Jehovah does sometimes refer to God the Father. An example of this is in Psalm chapter, excuse me, you don't talk about chapters in Psalm. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is where Jehovah is said to speak to the Messiah. Jesus quoted this. The Lord said to my Lord. Jehovah said to my Lord. So this is God the Father speaking to the Messiah. That's a reference to God the Father as Jehovah. But what is very clear from the Scriptures is that predominantly the name Jehovah refers to the second person of the Trinity. And that every time Jehovah is said to be manifested to his people or speaks to his people, that is the second person of the Trinity. Now, the message this morning is on the knowledge of Christ from the book of Exodus. 
the knowledge of Christ from the book of Exodus. This is a this is a book sermon. You may think, oh man, if we're going to be here till two o'clock, no, no. Well, me, I don't. But the point is here that we do need to understand how Christ desires to be known, and he particularly needs wants to be known as Jehovah. Hopefully, I can show you that as we work through this book. There are at least 12 different statements, not 12 different statements, but 12 statements throughout the book where where Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Jehovah, gives the reasons for what he is about to do. His intention was to make himself know. In this book, Christ reveals himself as Jehovah through the Exodus, through the tabernacle, and through the Sabbath. And one of the things I hope I can show you as we work through these different areas, the Exodus, the tabernacle, and the Sabbath, is to see the covenantal connection between these. Now, when we come to this first text, Exodus 6, verses 1 through 8, what we see here is Christ, what Jehovah is doing is he's he's renewing his covenant with his people. He's renewing his covenant as Jehovah. And what is his purpose in doing this in the Exodus? Notice how in verse 2 ends with, I am Jehovah. In fact, the text ends with, I am Jehovah, giving emphasis to that divine name. In verse 3, listen to what we read here. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah, I was not known to them. The interesting thing about that statement is if you go through the book of Genesis, you will find that the patriarchs knew the name Jehovah. You can just go through your English version and you will see how many times Lord is in all caps. Is there a contradiction here? No, not at all. I'm not going to give you a Hebrew grammar lesson. But here's the thing. When it says here, I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as, the word there that's translated as is a simple preposition, normally translated by, sometimes through, But in this this case, the sense is in the capacity. In the capacity. So listen to this again. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob in the capacity of God Almighty, but in the capacity of my name Jehovah, I was not known to them. Here's what the Lord is saying to Moses. He is letting them know, he's letting Moses know that he desires 
for his people to know him in the capacity of Jehovah. He desires for them to have a full orbed understanding of the significance of his name. In other words, he desires that every time his covenant name of Jehovah is spoken, when it's read in the scriptures, when it's spoken upon the lips of God's people, that they would understand it's to speak volumes of him. Are there people that you know who are very, very famous? I mean, think about it. There's some people, you mention their name, and all of a sudden you're going, that just speaks volumes because you know the person so well. It might be a theologian like John Calvin. Those kinds of things. But think about how much greater Christ has revealed himself, and he wants all of that significance, all of that that he has communicated to his people by his mighty acts, he wants them to have a sense of the greatness of his name because it speaks of the greatness of himself. We see that the Lord is desiring here, as he's about to lead his people out of Egypt, verse 4, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. So here is this covenantal renewal. We see in verse 5, Christ's pity for his people. For I have heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians kept in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant But then we go to verse 6. We find here that Christ is telling Moses his intention to redeem his people. Notice verse 6. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am Jehovah. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So there is here the promise of redemption. Christ said that he would redeem them from their burdens, from their bondage, that he would redeem them with an outstretched arm. And he would do this with great judgments. The point here, the main focus that I want you to see is there in verse 7 where the Lord says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. That's covenantal language. But here it is. Here's that one of those key phrases, key, key statements. Then you shall know that I am Jehovah your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Think about this. Have you ever, I'm sure you've considered that the Exodus presents a picture of every believer's individual salvation. 
Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Amen. Because I thought I was going to have to unpack that a lot. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's true. The parallels elsewhere, even in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, I find it striking that it be in the book of Acts, where the mission is primarily directed to the, to the Jews. How many times the preaching of the gospel is connected with the signs and wonders? That's exactly what we find about the Exodus in the Old Testament. Is that God delivered his people with great signs and wonders? This is what I want you to understand. Christ saved you. He redeemed you. He delivered you from the bondage of sin. What? So you could go to heaven? Well, somewhat. Yeah, that's some truth to that. Do you remember my message last time I was here? Christ suffered once for sin. The just for the unjust. And here it is, that he might bring us to God. The purpose of redemption is to bring us in the fellowship with our triune God, and particularly with Christ himself. Think about that. Let that sink in. That's why he redeemed you. Now, still, in, I still connect, what I'm about to give you is still a part of the Exodus. In the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, we see the Lord's desire to make himself known as Jehovah. This is in chapter 7. Um, I'm going to just go ahead and start with verse 3, where the Lord says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt with great judgments. And here it is. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Jehovah when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel among them. That's why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He didn't just want his people to know him as Jehovah. He wanted the Egyptians to know him as Jehovah. Now, he definitely wanted God's people to know him as Jehovah. Go to chapter 10. This is verses 1 and 2. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Now Jehovah said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things which I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among you. And here it is that you may know that I am Jehovah. There's no question, is there, that your Savior desires to be known. And He wants you to know Him through the Scriptures. 
If you're reading the scriptures the way that you should, as the Shorter Catechism says, with, with, I'll get it, diligence, preparation, and prayer. See some people nodding, so I must have gotten that one right. But that's the point. Diligence, preparation, and prayer. A supernatural transaction is taking place, or it is to take place, when you're studying the scripture. It's not just to gain information. It's to grow in your knowledge of Christ and therefore to grow in grace. To see the glory of Christ being revealed in the Scripture so that you're being transformed from image, from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now we have to go back to chapter 9 to see that it's not just that the Lord wants the, His people to know Him in the capacity of Jehovah, or the Egyptians to know him in the capacity of Jehovah. He wants the whole world to know him in the capacity of Jehovah. Listen to this. Chapter 9, verses 13 through 16. Then Jehovah said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, And stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Jehovah, God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people. Here it is. That you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. But then he goes on. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you, your people, with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But, indeed, for this purpose I raised you up, that I may, here it is, that I may show my power in you, and that my name, and what name is that? Jehovah. That my name may be declared in all. The earth, that my name may be declared in all the earth. I want you to hear this from Joshua chapter 2. This is what Rahab said to the spies. And said to them, I know that Jehovah has given you the land, and that the terror, wow, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land has faded because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in any one because of you. For Jehovah your God is he... For Jehovah your God is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now think about this. How many years 
after the exodus and the parting of the Red Sea, it transpired. Well, they wandered in the fort in the wilderness for how many years? Forty years. This is still in the memory of the Canaanites. What God did in delivering his people in the way that he did. And what we see next is how Christ, how Jehovah destroyed and revealed himself in the destruction of Pharaoh and his army. This is in chapter 14. I'm going to start at verse 4 and then jump to verse 17. Hear these words. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am Jehovah. And now go over to verse 17. And I indeed have hardened the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am Jehovah. When I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, understand this. Yes, the Lord desires for these Egyptians to know him in the capacity of Jehovah, but guess what? Do we say, oh, well, I guess in this case, God's people didn't figure that one out? No! In the destruction of Pharaoh and his army, not only does the Lord reveal himself as Jehovah to the Egyptians, he's still revealing himself to his own people, is he not? I want you to look at, there at the end of verse 14, we're going to be looking at the song of Moses, but I want you to notice Israel's response when they see what Jehovah did to Pharaoh and his armies. This is verses 30 and 31. So Jehovah saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work of which Jehovah had done in Egypt. So the people feared Jehovah and believed Jehovah and his servant Moses. There's a good reason for that response of fear and faith on the part of God's people. Fear and faith. Understand this, that Sometimes, when we speak of the fear of the Lord, it probably does have a certain sense of a trembling before Him. Now, in the Sunday school lesson next week, I'm going to miss that, but it's going to be on the wrath of God. We need to realize 
And the Israelites learned this. Jehovah is a God of wrath. I also believe that many times the fear of the Lord is an abbreviated form or abbreviated way of describing the true religion of God's people. That means faith. That means obedience. That means whatever you understand in terms of the worship of God's people, it's included in that concept of fear. Wish I had more time to unpack that. But once these people saw, once God's people saw the mighty, powerful act of Jehovah in destroying the most powerful king known at that time and his army. And when we come to verse or chapter 15, this is sometimes known as the Song of Moses and Israel. And all I can do here, I don't, I'm not going to take time to read the entire section here. But I do want you to show you the things that Israel clearly learned with this expressed in this song. First of all, they learned that Jehovah is their Redeemer. Look at verse 13. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. They also learned that Jehovah is sovereign. Sovereign over the natural realm. Look at verse 10. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. That is showing God's power over particularly Jehovah's power over the natural realm, over the spiritual realm as well. Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Jehovah, among the gods? Glorious. You are, who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Verse 11 is something I like to include in my prayers often. What a powerful description. He's greater than all the gods. Chapter 12 and verse 12 talks about how he judged, made judgment on the gods of Egypt. He's also powerful. He's sovereign over the human realm. The very fact that he speaks here in verses 9 and 10 about the destruction of Pharaoh and his army is a testimony to that. Look at also verses 14 and 16. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of, chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Oh, we kind of already referred to that in Joshua chapter 2, didn't we? I could go on, but notice how this song ends. Verse 18, Jehovah will reign forever and ever. And if you're a good Presbyterian, you're going to say, thank you. And even if you're a bad Presbyterian, you'd probably say it too, wouldn't you? 
All right. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Once again, I want to point to the fact that Christ redeemed you. Jehovah redeemed you so that you would have a fuller sense of who he is. There should be a fullness of your understanding of who Christ is because he has delivered you from sin. He's delivered you from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day he will deliver you from the very presence of sin. In delivering you from the penalty of sin, so just go listen, great. Justification. Power of sin. Sanctification. I think I heard that too. But we also come to that presence of sin. I don't know about you, but I'm longing for the day when I'll pass in the glory or Christ comes back and I will be confirmed in righteousness. When I was in high school, one of the most vile, foul-mouthed, Students at my high school, it's Doug Rose. And when the Lord saved him, it sent a shockwave through my high school. It did. The transformation was dramatic. Instead of being loud mouthed and vile, he was meek. He loved the Lord. He read the scriptures. And I've seen his Facebook page recently, and he's still going on with the Lord. You see, what we can see from this is, see, not only did the Lord redeem Israel so that Israel would understand who he is, he did it so that the Egyptians would. He did it so the whole world would know. So that by your conversion, by your salvation, others should know then who Jehovah is. Now the next thing we're looking at, we looked at the um, the Exodus itself. We're going to go on to the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle is that continuing symbol by which Christ made himself known as Jehovah. <coughs> the importance of the tabernacle is indicated by the fact it's the dominating subject from chapter 25 to the end of the book. That's chapter 40. Think about that. The tabernacle is the dominating subject of about 40% of the book. So we should come to grips, first of all, with why is it that Jehovah decided to have his people build the tabernacle? If you look at chapter 29, and this is at the end of the chapter, notice what he says in verse 44. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also 
consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. His desire is to dwell with his people. Now this also, in this text, we can see that there's a covenant, there's a covenant he hears well. And he says, and will be their God. That's covenantal language. But notice verse 46. And they shall know that I am Jehovah their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am Jehovah their God. When you... Read here in verse 46. There, we have an and here. But I believe that the actual sense should be and therefore. And therefore. So it should read this way. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And therefore. And therefore. They shall know that I am Jehovah their God. The The Bible makes it abundantly clear that there are three primary dwelling places of God. I mean, there's the tabernacle, there's the temple. But if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in, in verses 19 and 20, you find that the body of the believer is described as the temple of God. We also know from Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, that God's going to dwell with his people in the New Jerusalem. But we also know from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, that the church itself is a temple of God. I would invite you to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to verses 19. The 22. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Now, therefore, you, have no, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here it is. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, <laughs> Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, he's describing you, you do know this, don't you? In whom the whole building is fitted together, grows into a holy temple to the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Every time you gather together for worship, I want you to understand It's a means by which Jehovah makes himself known to you. Do you believe that? I love worshiping with God's people. And just so you know, if I haven't said this before, I love coming to worship here. I love coming. 
It's, to me, it's a privilege to be able to come here and preach and administer the Lord's Supper. But think about it. The reason why Christ dwells with you, within you, so you would know him better and have a fuller sense of the significance of who he is. The reason why he dwells with his people in the church is because there he makes himself known to his people. The last point, this is in chapter 31. The Sabbath is the continuing sign by which Christ made himself known to made himself known as Jehovah. And of course, as the Sabbath continues, he's continuing to make himself known as Jehovah to his people. The the Sabbath was instituted as the second covenantal sign for God's people. The first one, of course, was circumcision, which is mentioned in Exodus 12. But notice... There, I'm going to just read verses. This is 31, Exodus 31, verse 12 first. And Jehovah spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Here it is. That you may know that I am Jehovah, who sanctifies you. It's the entire day that's in view here. It's not just your gatherings on the Lord's Day. I'm a Presbyterian minister. I was asked if I affirmed everything that's written in the Westminster Confession. I have to admit, one of the things that I struggled with was I said, I don't think I can keep the Sabbath the way the Confession says I'm supposed to keep it. Now look, I read that chapter and it was a big old gulp. I called one of my dear friends. He's a PCA pastor in the PCA. He said, Sid... We're asking you to agree with the confession. Do you agree with the confession, what it says about the Sabbath? I said, well, yes. He said, nobody can keep the Sabbath as well as we should. And I said, okay. I can become a full full, full Presbyterian. So you understand where I'm coming from? I have heard... From the same man, the same preacher, the same pastor, I think at least three sermons on the Sabbath. And usually, rather than giving any guidelines, and I'm not going to do any of that today, but rather than giving any guidelines, it's more like, well, it's kind of up to you to decide how you want to keep the Sabbath. I'm going, please, please give me something. But I simply want to say this. The reason why the Lord has continued to give his people a Sabbath 
so that they can know him in the capacity of Jehovah. That's still true. Think of the full-blown, full-orb significance of that covenantal name, Jehovah. In Exodus chapter 33 and verse 13, Moses said to Jehovah, I'm quoting now, Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your ways that I may know you and may find grace in your sight. Moses expressed his desire to know Jehovah. That's what's in that prayer. His desire to know Jehovah, to know Christ, in order to find grace in his sight. Have you found grace in the sight of Christ? In John chapter 17, verse 3, in his high priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus prayed to the Father, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let that definition of eternal life sink deep into your soul. Jesus said eternal life was knowing God the Father and himself. If you are not a believer, you will not enjoy eternal life until you come to know God the Father and God the Son. And you cannot know God the Father and God the Son until you know that your sins are forgiven through the atoning blood of Christ and that you know that His righteousness has been imputed to you. Peter Lewis, in his book, The Glory of Christ, tells about a time when he and about 30 other uh, visitors were at a local chapel in West Wells. And Lewis said the preacher led the worship in a deeply spiritual manner. At the close of the sermon, the preacher asked if he could end with a personal testimony. And this is what Lewis wrote as far as the testimony of that preacher. The preacher said, When I was a boy, about 12, I had a great hero. My hero was a local sportsman who achieved the rare distinction of gaining a cap in rugby for playing for his country and who played cricket at County Standard. I so admired this man that I papered my walls of my bedroom with press clippings and photographs of him and loved to talk and hear about his exploits on the field. He was my hero. Then, when I was in my 14th year, I actually got to know my hero personally. He was a keen angler, and I used to go fishing with him. On these occasions, I was able to observe him from an entirely different viewpoint and got to know the man and not merely his image. 
Lewis goes on to explain that the preacher paused at this point. He looked closely at the congregation and slowly shook his head from side to side and with considerable authority said, and the nearer I got, the smaller he became. Lewis then told how the preacher went on to briefly describe his boyhood disillusionment when he learned about the true character of the man who had been his hero. And then suddenly the preacher, with a voice full of emotion, cried out. But God eventually led that downcast schoolboy to a new hero. And I have walked with my Jesus for 35 years now. In that time, I have often disappointed him, but he has never disappointed me. And I've got to know him better. And the nearer I get, the bigger he becomes. And the nearer I get, the bigger he becomes. If you are a believer, you draw nearer to Christ by growing in your knowledge of him and also by beholding his glory in the scriptures. My hope is that you now see how abundantly Christ is revealed in the Old Testament and that you will study it and the New Testament as a means of growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and as a means by beholding His transforming glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice. That second person of the Trinity had such an active role in those Old Testament scriptures. We see him. We've seen him this morning afresh. And pray, Lord, that we would see him over and over in the scriptures, revealing to us his awesomeness. Lord, when we think upon him, when we think upon the name Jehovah, may we have a better and better grasp of the full significance of his name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.